listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening. We're in a series that we're calling The Essentials because we're going through what we consider to be the doctrinal, theological essentials of the church. When we talk about doctrine, we could spend weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks and years and years doing theological study. In fact, there are folks that have gone to school all their life just to go to school some more of their life to teach folks theology and doctrine and the scripture. And and, and there's so much we could never get through it. What we're trying to do in this series is, is highlight those things that are absolutely essential, not those things that are important. It's all important, but some things are more essential than others. Some things, if we're not agreed on on certain theological positions, then we are on the outside of what is considered to be Christian. There are some things that we can disagree on, some aspects of theology that we can have a difference of opinion and still be under the same umbrella of Christendom. It's okay to disagree in certain areas, but there's a few, and there's a few that we have to make sure that we're agreed because when we disagree, we step out of what is considered orthodoxy, right teaching. We step out of the arena of what is considered Christian. And so we've been doing that now. This will be our uh, fifth week. We had an introduction to begin with, and now we're on essential number four. But in, in a way of kind of reminding ourselves of where we've been thus far, let's look at some of the essentials that we have already gone through. And, and we'll, let's just read these out loud together. We started off in the, in the realm of bibliology, What what do we understand about the Bible? Let's read it together. The Bible alone is authoritative. It is inspired and inerrant in the original documents. We believe that the Bible is the authority on all humanity. It is God's word passed down from him to humanity throughout the centuries. It is complete. It's all we need. It's more than we can understand, but it tells us everything we need to know about who God is and how we as his creation are to align ourselves with him. There are other great works. In fact, we've mentioned certain works that have come through history that we believe God has used in order to keep the church in line with truth. We've mentioned creeds. We've mentioned councils. We've talked about things that have happened that we absolutely believe that God superintended. But none of those creeds, none of those councils, none of those things carry with it the authority of God's word. God's word alone, the Bible, is authoritative. So that's our stand. And deviating from that, from inspiration, from inerrancy, say, what is that? Well, I would refer you back to the sermon online about essential number one. Any departure from this statement is beginning to step out of the arena of orthodoxy, and we need to be careful. So we move from bibliology to what's called theology proper in essential number two. When we start understanding what it is about God, how are we to understand who God is? How has God revealed himself through the Bible, which alone is authoritative? And we get to essential number two. Let's read it out loud together. God is Trinity. One God eternally existing in three distinct persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Now this is, this is the, the basic, base, brass tacks understanding of who God is. We could talk for years about the attributes of God. We could talk about the nature of God and how he has revealed himself to us. We simply don't have the time to do it. 
But the best thing we can do when it comes to an essential understanding is understand how it is he's revealed himself to us. And he clearly stated that he is one God among no others. There are no other gods. He alone is God. There are no other deities. But then he has revealed himself to us in particular by showing us that that one God exists eternally in three unique, distinct persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Father is not the Son. When we pray, Father God, we want to thank you for giving your life for us on the cross. That is an incorrect way of thinking. The Father did not give himself up on the cross. God the Son did. And when we pray, Holy Spirit, we just want to invite you in and we thank you for your blood. No, it was not the Holy Spirit's blood. It was the Son's blood. So we're to understand God as one what and three who's. One God, three persons, Father, Son, Spirit. Here's the thing. If you totally understand that, if you've got that figured out and you know how that is and how that is to be worked out on paper, let me go ahead and burst your bubble by saying, unfortunately, you don't. Chances are great you've fallen into one of those systems of heresy that try to put together in our minds something that we have no understanding of or no likeness of in our world. So what do we do? We believe what God's word says and we try to articulate it accurately. But if we try to wrap our mind around it and understand it completely, we will simply drive ourselves crazy. And if that doesn't do it, then when we move to Christology and trying to understand Jesus, how has God revealed himself to us in the person of his son? How are we to understand the incarnation, if the Trinity hasn't already driven you crazy, well, Christology will in this essential statement. Let's say it together. Jesus Christ is both fully God and fully man. How can you be 100% two things without mixing, without overshadowing, without being distinctly separate? How can you do that? I don't know. I just know what scripture teaches. And that is the eternal God the Son set aside. He emptied himself of whatever needed to be set aside voluntary by him in order to step into our world and become fully completely lacking nothing in his humanity being at the self-same time fully God fully man neither of those two overshadowing or taking over neither of those two mixing and mingling with but at the same time being fully God and fully man with one exception between him and you and I and that is he did not possess a sin nature though his nature was human it was not corrupted by sin so he could be the holy blameless absolute perfect sacrifice for you and for me dying in our place relating to us completely being one of us and at the very same time holy and blameless dying in our place for our sin providing for you and I what we could not provide for ourselves it will drive you crazy if you try to understand what is ununderstandable. But if you don't embrace what has been revealed, then you run the risk of stepping outside of orthodoxy. And I know last week I probably uh, really disappointed a lot of us. Because we discovered that the way we think about Jesus, maybe we've grown up thinking about him, is unfortunately falls often in one of the camps of heresy, how we're to understand the incarnation. And so I apologize if that hurt your feelings. And what I really want to do is to help you understand that embracing Christ doesn't always mean being able to put him in a box and wrap him up and seal it off with a bow. We simply have to embrace and communicate about him what is accurate. Fully God, 
fully man. So we've been through bibliology, we've been through theology proper, we've been through Christology, and now we want to talk about anthropology. How are we to understand mankind? And that's where we come to essential number four. Let's say this together. The human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. The human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. Now, Kevin, that's a bold statement you may be thinking because you've never met my grandmother. My grandmother is a saint they've ever been with. You've never met aunt so-and-so. I mean, she is blameless. I've never seen a cross attitude or an ugly word. She's the most giving. He's the most loving. I've never met anybody like, so surely that's too bold. That's too broad of a statement. And I hope by the end of our time today, I will have argued through the scripture and, and, and convinced you that the scripture teaches that the human race is completely dead, lost completely spiritually. And by the time we're done, I, I hope not to discourage you, but to encourage you, even though we're going to end on a fairly sour note that we're all broken as bad off as we can be. But you know, our world won't say that. Our world will say, look how far we've come technologically like is there anything that we can't do right now it seems like if there's anything that we can't do they're trying to figure out how we can do it I I heard just a little snippet on the radio this week and I was listening to a theologian talking about the reality that science thinks they're right on the verge of being able to clone human beings I got to be honest with you. I don't know what I think about. Like, I can't imagine what that, and, and you know, it may never materialize. That may never happen in our lifetime. But you know what they're, they are trying to do it. And they think they've just about got it figured out. How to clone a human being. Therefore, by what they think, creating life. It's bizarre. And I mean, there's, there's, there's doctor's visits that you can take now, if you can afford it, from your living room. And you can meet with your doctor across the screen. I mean, that kind of stuff used to happen on Star Trek and with not very good special effects. Now it's happening daily. You're communicating with a doctor across the country, around the world. And there's a, have you seen this device? You connect it to your smartphone. It's an EKG. You put it to your smartphone, you stick your fingers down on it. Some of y'all got one? If you got one, I want to know about it. My wife says I can't have one. She said, I, I saw it on TV. You put your fingers on it and immediately you have an EKG. Because every now and then, I feel a little kathunk, you know, just kind of kathunk, kathunk. And those of you who have been around here a little while know that, that actually I had a pretty uh, scaredy cat doctor that put me in the hospital over the weekend. I had a heart cath. That was all very bizarre at my young age, okay? But it's got me thinking about my heart. It's got me thinking about the kathunk, dunk. And so I said, did you see that, honey? She said, you can't have one of them. Why can't I have one? You don't love me? She said, no, I won't be able to stand you. Always wanting to do that. You know, you just, you'll be flipping that thing out all the time, wanting to EKG yourself. But technology has come so far in the things we think that we are progressing. And we think the world thinks that we're getting better. Watch the news. Watch the news and hear about killings and abductions and then these bizarre stories about people being locked in closets for decade i mean things happening around the world these mass actions happening and it'll quickly tell us that no we're not getting better In fact, I think the scripture will bear that out. So as we move into this idea of defending that the scripture teaches that the human race is both lost and dead, completely lost and dead spiritually, we have to have some governing governing presuppositions. These are some things that we're going to base this talk on 
that we're not going to defend. Now, if you want us to defend these, we'll be happy to defend them, okay? You just come and say, Pastor Kevin, I just really would love for you to defend why you feel this way, why the church thinks they can just put out a sermon and not defend these things. Those seem like pretty big things, and I'm just wondering what your defense would be. Here they are. Number one, foundationally speaking, we're saying that the Genesis 1 through 4 account is to be understood literally. Before we get into this, we're saying that when you come to Genesis, the first book of the Scripture, and you read chapters 1 through 4 about the creation of of all things out of nothing by God's design, when you see the creation, you see the interaction, you see the results of, of action, and then you see the future moving forward. Those first four chapters, we believe that that's to be understood literally. Those were real events that happened in real time that was created by God for real folks. There's, there's folks in the, now understand, there are folks under the umbrella of Christianity that want to understand Genesis 1 through 4 as poetry. Not to be understood literally, but to be understood as a picture poetry of, of how things came into being. Now, I don't like that. I think that's a, a, a terrible way of looking at Genesis 1 through 4. I don't think you can defend that if you're being honest. But if someone says to me that essentially I believe these eight essentials and they go, but I just don't think that Genesis 1 through 4 has validity as far as literally is concerned. I'm going to hug them. I ain't going to like it. But I'm going to hug them because they're brothers and sisters because that's within the framework of poor Bible interpretation, but it's still within the framework of orthodoxy. But we're going to say that for our benefit of defense, Genesis 1 through 4 is to be understood literally. Number two, we're off of that. We're to believe and to understand that Adam and Eve were real people and that Eden was a real place. And it's not a resort somewhere down in the Bahamas. It's a real place created by a real God inhabited by two very real people. And I'll go ahead and tell you, I don't know if they had belly buttons. I just don't. I don't. I think logically they probably wouldn't have. But I'm not God and I wasn't there, so I don't know. But I think they were real people, Adam and Eve, living in a real place. I kind of took y'all sideways a little bit, didn't I? <laughs> I'm sorry. (laughs) The third presupposition. We believe that everything in the Genesis creation account was created perfect as God intended it. And by that, we're saying we believe that God did not create it in a state of brokenness. We believe it. It was created as God intended Since God made it and called it very good on the concluding day, he saw all of these things and called it very good. We see that as perfection as God intended it. So let's move into this this statement, this essential statement that if you disagree with, you're probably going to be outside of biblical orthodoxy. The human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. It asks the first question, Was this lost and dead spiritually God's design for humankind? If you're going to say that you believe that the human race is completely lost and dead spiritually, is that the way God designed it? I know I've already let the cat out of the bag a little bit on that one, but let's move through it and let's be intentional about it. Was this God's design, this state of humanity that we exist in? Is this how God intended? The short answer is, what do you think, class? No, I wrote mine in big capital N-O. You might want to go absolutely, positively, certainly not. This sin that we're living in, this brokenness, this, this muck that we find ourselves existing is, as human beings that we're calling completely lost and dead spiritually was not God's intention it wasn't his design Adam and Eve were created we believe because God's words teaches it created in God's image Genesis chapter number one verse 26 and 27 says then God said let us 
I'm not going to, I'm not going to stand real hard on that ice, but I am going to say you got to deal with what that us means. And I think it points back to essential number two, dealing with one God, three persons. He says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And you go, well, how did that work out? Because God is one God, three distinct persons, and I'm just one person. Unless, have you ever had somebody see you and go, hey, do you know Eric? And you go, no, I don't know Eric. Well, you got a brother out because you look just like, that's not the other person of your identity. It's just one of y'all. Thank God. There's just one of y'all. It's just one of me. But God created us in his image and let him uh, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. What is the image of God? Here's, here's the fast answer, okay? Here's the one you can write in your Bible and know that you're always on the right track. The image of God is we don't know. We don't know because he never said this is what it is. But there's something, are, are we, are we agree? I know some of y'all dress up your animals in little sweaters. I know that. And you call them fur babies and I don't get it, but I love you. But can we at least agree that there's a lot of difference between real human beings and animals, really? Because a cat will eat you. If you, and yeah, so they will. There's something different about us. You know what I think that is? I think that is in some way a visual evidence of the image of God in us. Could it be our capacity to genuinely love? Fido does not love you. You feed Fido. Fido wants to be fed. Fido instinctively wants to be drawn to you. But we know how to love, right? And that's different than the animal world. We have the capacity to reason and to think and to, and, and to make choices. I think that is connected to the image of God. But ultimately, I don't know what the image of God is, but I know it was created in each and every one of us and every child that is still going to be born will possess the image of God. Next, Adam and Eve were created in the state of what I'm calling unconfirmed innocence. So Adam and Eve were created real beings in the image of God in a state that I'm calling unconfirmed innocence. Maybe you want to write it a different way. Maybe you would like to write it untested holiness. You know, it's kind of like when you take the white shirt out of that plastic bag and you pull all of the pins out because you got an event you got to wear a suit jacket over and it's just pristine that's as white as it's ever going to be right because you know you sweat in it you're going to wash it and uh, it's not ever going to be like it was right so it's this idea of untested holiness unconfirmed innocence that's how we're understanding adam and eve they were created good just and perfect, meaning they had not sinned. Having not sinned, for the first time a human being was created and before its creator, his and her creator, as an, an untested, holy, blank slate. It was really a blank slate opportunity for Adam and Eve. Next, Adam and Eve, were this God does not know, Adam and Eve were created with the unique opportunity and capacity 
to either obey or disobey God's simple command. What was that? Simply Genesis 2, 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We believe that God created Adam and Eve in a state of untested holiness, unconfirmed innocence, and they truly had the unique opportunity, unique to them, and they had the capacity to choose to disobey or obey. We don't have that capacity We are not born in innocence, though any nursery, in any hospital, in any part of the world, parents and family members will hover over these newborns that can't do anything on their own. And they'll go, just look at the innocence. We're going to argue that scripture clearly teaches that the human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. So what you're looking at is this precious little bundle of could sin right now if they had the capacity to speak and they would just sin like we would because they're not innocent. Adam and Eve were, we think scripture teaches. They clearly had a choice. God said, don't eat of that one tree. And they had the capacity to decide. Now, I know what your mind wants to do. Your mind wants to start going down the line of, well, what if they hadn't disobeyed? And you know what I think? I know you're going to have a lot of fun doing that on your own because I'm not going to argue with you because we don't know. But we know they had the opportunity to obey or disobey. So was this lost and dead condition God's design? No. In fact, he created it perfect, good, just, holy, with the opportunity and clean slate to either obey or disobey. Well, what happened? You know what happened, but we're going to go through it anyway. What happened? Adam and Eve chose to disobey. Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food... And that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desires to make one wise, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. When she saw it, she wanted it. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he Eight. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, wait a minute, Kevin, you're, for, you're forgetting the problem here. Well, what's the problem? Well, you remember, they wouldn't have done that if it hadn't have been for the serpent. It's the serpent's fault. Well, look, the serpent had a role in this problem, but the fault was the man and woman who had a choice to make. They just chose to listen to the wrong influence. They chose to disobey God's clear command and God brought his judgment on them. Read Genesis chapter number three and you're gonna discover God brings the consequences when he comes looking for the man and the woman after they chose to disobey, God not desiring but in order to maintain his holiness brought those consequences and announced them to the first man and woman who no longer were in a state of untested holiness, who no longer were in a state of unconfirmed innocence. They were in the state of sinner because they had disobeyed God's clear command. And we see scripture immediately on the heels of this beginning to multiply, snowball, if you will, that first just simple act of eating the fruit I mean just probably one silly bite and we see this multiply we see it in Genesis 4 when Cain the older the older son of of uh, Adam and Eve 
takes vengeance because of his own wounded pride and hurt feelings. And what does he do? He kills his brother and then tries to hide it from God. Genesis number five, we see that murderous action become the, the calling card of the whole society. I mean, it's, it's kind of like one of those, those time jumps that you see in TV, in TV and on movies where it's like it started here, but then all of a sudden, and that's what happens in Genesis number five. It throws us forward in generations, and it's like over the generations, it just got worse and worse. Why? Because there were more and more folks like Cain looking to kill and steal and whatever they could. And then in Genesis chapter number six through eight, we see God's cup of wrath filling up over the brim and saying I'm going to deal with this sin in a very distinctive way and we see the account of the flood where all but one person and his family were saved everyone else was destroyed we see this snowball thing happening then in Genesis chapter number nine we see uh, Noah's sons being dumb and doing some stupid gross things it's like is this never going to end and the answer is no not as long as people are being born why because human beings are born completely lost and dead spiritually in genesis 11 we see the the nations getting together and building up this great tower which seems a lot like what's happening in our day that there's nothing that can stop us can anything stop human ingenuity? Can I just tell you, the humans don't think so. Humans think if, it's, if it can be done, we can do it. And they built this tower to try to, I don't know what, actually what they were trying to do. Maybe they were trying to reach God or they were just trying to show uh, what they were capable of. But God said, no, nah, we're going to stop this right now. And he messed up their languages and they went off and lived elsewhere. And now we're trying to learn other languages so we can communicate with people all over the world. What happened? Snowball. Sin entered into the world and death by sin just began to snowball. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, they became spiritually dead. They became dead spiritually immediately. When they disobeyed God, immediately they recognized what about themselves? They were naked. And why they recognized that? Because they were no longer innocent. They died spiritually instantly. They became spiritually dead and broken, infected by sin immediately. As a result of Adam and Eve's sin, they began to die physically. Could God have taken their life had he chosen to do that? Because he said, when you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. Would God have been just in taking their life and starting over? Sure he could have. He would have. But what did he do? In his grace, death was present. Death was happening. Death was in progress. But by his grace, he allowed that to be over a time. They began to die physically. They became dead spiritually. And then lastly, because of a result of Adam and Eve's sin, they plunged all humanity. They plunged all humanity into a life and world consumed and dominated by s-i-n we are born in sin we are going to sin <clears throat> Andy and i were talking about this last week we were talking about jesus and whether he could have or could not have sin i just made a statement to him i said you know a dog is not a dog because it barks right you don't say well you're a you're a dog because you barked he barks because he's a dog, right? Not a dog because he barks. He barks because he's a dog. You're not a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're a sinner. Adam and Eve disobeyed God, breaking the human race and passing that sin down to every generation. 
to follow. So what happened? Sin happened. Sin happened. You say, well, what's that got to do with me? I wasn't there. I wasn't in the garden. I don't like what you say about it being bad. I was, look, I don't even like what you said because I was there when my child was born. I just got to tell you, I don't like you saying that they're sinners because, you know, they're just baby. They don't know how to sin. Well, let's see what God's word says. Romans chapter number five, verse number 12 is kind of the hub around how human sinfulness is to be able to be understood. We can see through the scripture numerous examples of how human sin is going to play out. But Romans 5.12 is that verse around which all of those rotate because it tells us clearly, just as sin came into the world through one man. Who's that one man class? Adam. And death through sin. Who's death? Adam and Eve. She was there, but he's putting it all under Adam's headship and authority. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. And the women say, see there, I told you, y'all were the sinners, we're the innocent one. Wrong. Mankind, come on, y'all. Y'all know better. So death passed to all mankind. Why? Because all have sinned. Adam's sin fatally affects the entire human race, bringing to them physical and spiritual death. Physical and spiritual death. It infects all of us. It affects all of us, the entire human race. This idea of original sin. What was the original sin? The original disobeying of God's command. It's what we call original sins. The original, the first one by which all the rest of them come. Original sin. It's the loss of original righteousness and the distortion of the image of God in everyone. It is the loss of original righteousness and the distortion of the image of God in everyone. It's the idea that in Adam's sin, human righteousness was broken. And the chance for human righteousness is gone. And it says that the image of God, while still present, is forevermore in the human race going to be distorted. If things just go on, that image of God will be broken perpetually. That's what happened, and that's what Romans 5, 12, we believe, is communicating. It's the idea that Adam's guilt is legally charged to my account. This is the idea of imputation. That's a theological word, imputation. You like imputation because the Scripture teaches us that When Jesus died for us in our place and for our sin, he took our sin on himself. God imputed our wickedness onto Jesus so that on the cross, Jesus might die in my place with my sin imputed on him. And then when he rose victorious, then God can impute the righteousness of Christ that was victorious over that sin. He can impute it onto my account. So it's not my righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness. It wasn't Christ's sin, it was my sin. So this idea of imputation happens in the garden when Adam's guilt for his sin is imputed to your account and to my account so that when we are conceived and our life begins, by the way, that's when we believe life begins, when we are conceived and new life has been formed, we start out with a debt. And what is that debt? It's a sin debt. Why? Because Adam's guilt, his debt is imputed to us as a legal transaction. Not only that, Adam's sin nature 
is passed down to me. That's what we would call inherited sin. So it is imputed guilt and inherited sin. So you say, well, what does that mean? That means, yes, the sin of Adam's, you know, the guilt of Adam's sin imputed to my account so that I'm, I'm conceived in guilt, but his nature has been passed down to me. This broken human nature has been passed down so that when I get old enough, even as an infant, to realize... Hey, you know what? When I have been uncomfortable and I have communicated that to mom by crying, she comes to me. I'm not really uncomfortable except I want mama. So what does the baby do? The baby says, in effect, I'm hurting, I'm wet, I'm hungry. And we go to pick them up. And we check their diaper, and they're not wet. We look around, they're not hurt. We put a bottle in their mouth, they push it aside, but what are they doing? They're smiling, cooing. Why? Because they wanted you. But what did they do? Be honest, people. What did they do to you? Lied to you? I mean, that little precious little pumpkin just lied bold-faced to you. Why? Why? inherited sin it's there and you know what that disobedience that will come out in their life just it's just it's adam passed down this is known in a couple of ways it's not a blank to fill in but this is this idea of uh it being a federal thing that we get sin through Adam in a federal, a representative way. He represented us in the garden and in his sin, we too, under a federal headship, we come under him and are now guilty. But it's also a realistic, it's a seminal way because it's passed down through the DNA, through the humanity. And it's a combination of both him doing for us what we wish he hadn't have done and then him giving to us something that we simply cannot combat in our own strength. We think that the scripture teaches that the human race is totally depraved. Now, we know that that is a Calvinistic term. And if you don't know what Calvin, Calvinism is, then we could talk about it one day. I wouldn't want you to be bothered by that. But those of you who know that there was a form of understanding uh, back in the... Uh, Oh, I'm not even going to say the hundreds because it's, I'm drawing a blank right now. But John Calvin, one of the reformers, he developed a theological system and, and, and he used this term total depravity. It means that we're broken. We're, we're hopelessly, the definition says, hopelessly enslaved by sin, death, and the devil being incapable of gaining any merit with or movement toward God. It means that we are alienated from and having no vital relationship with him. It's this idea of being guilty and condemned apart from God's grace. Total depravity. It means we're broken beyond compare. We couldn't fix ourselves if we wanted to fix ourselves. And not only that, we don't want to fix ourselves. And we couldn't get to God if we tried. And not only that, we don't want to get to God because we are totally, completely, absolutely depraved. The human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. I know that your grandmama was a nice lady. But because she's human, totally, completely lost and dead spiritually. Let's look at what the scripture says about humankind. Genesis 8, 21 says the intention of man's heart is evil. This is right here in your handout. You can go back and look these up. The intention of man heart, man's heart is evil from his youth. 
Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can know it? Psalm 51, 5, the humanity was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did our mothers conceive us. In Psalm 53, 1, we are corrupt doing abominable iniquity. There is no one who does good. Psalm 58, 3, we are estranged from the womb. We go astray from birth speaking lies. Romans 1, 29 through 32, we're filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. We're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We're gossips, we're slanderers, we're haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though we know of God's righteous decree and we practice, and and though we know those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only do them, but we give approval to those who practice them. Why are we like that? Because the human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. Romans 3.10, no righteous, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned, we all fall short of God's glory. Colossians 1.21, we are alienated and hostile in mind, we do evil deeds. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2, we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're following the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2.12, we are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Ephesians 4, 18 and 19, we're darkened in our understanding, alienated from the life of God because of ignorance. We are calloused and have given ourselves up to sensuality. We're greedy and we practice every kind of impurity. And Jesus, looking at Nicodemus, who was wanting to know how to be righteous, he said, look, You're not going to be condemned, Nicodemus. You're condemned already. Why? Because the human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. A gentleman by the name of Pelagius, back in the early church, again, just a guy trying to understand what the Scripture said, he said that people are born neutral are born with a blank slate, that they become sinners and guilty for sin when and if they commit sin. This ancient doctrine was and is false. You're not born in innocence. You are born in sin. But we run the risk of thinking that we got a clean slate. Doctrinal orthodoxy says man is completely lost and dead spiritually. What are some practical application for disciples? You go, you're going to leave it there? Yep, I'm going to leave it there because we need to let it just simmer there. Now, here's the thing. If you're new, and you're visiting, and you're going, um, is that the end of the story? It ain't the end of the story. We're going to talk about the end of the story next week, or part of the end of the story. But here's the thing. There is hope. There is hope. And his name's Jesus. And I'll be happy to tell you all about that before you leave today. But what are some practical applications for disciples knowing that the human law or the human race is completely lost and dead spiritually? Number one, if you've been saved by God's grace, you need to thank him again and again and again. You know why? Because you don't deserve his grace. You don't deserve nothing from him except condemnation. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve because of sin. His holiness cannot tolerate sin. And if you've been saved by God's grace, you need to thank him for it again and again and again. And sometimes, you know what that looks like and sounds like? After singing. Anyway. Number two. You need to stop thinking that 
Others are more evil than you. Who's the most evil person you can imagine? You got it? So are you. Nothing better than you. You bring nothing more to the table than the most wicked that you can imagine. That's our state because we're all completely lost and dead spirits. So stop thinking that others are more wicked than you are because they're not. Number three, stop expecting sinners to get their acts together. They can't. You know what we expect? We, ex- we expect you to interact with folks that do bad stuff. We expect you to develop friendships with people who do stuff and say things. Oh, my gosh. I can't believe they just said that. We expect and we encourage you to develop relationships and friendships with folks that do despicable things. Why? Because they're completely lost and dead spiritually. And you have the hope that they need. Stop expecting them to get their life right. They can't get their life right. Then lastly, let's start asking God to help us love sinners like he does. Help us first to see ourselves like he saw us. And then ask him to help us start seeing sinners like he does. You know how, you know how God sees sinners? I'm going to go ahead and tell you. He sees them through the lens of the cross. Because that's how God saw you. If you know Jesus as Savior, and that's how God saw me. And if we're going to represent Jesus in this world, if we're going to present that gospel that he's given to us to share, God's going to have to give us the grace to see sinners like he does. And God forbid we ever see them like the Pharisees did. Undesirable. I would love... I would love to hear folks come and tell me, hey, you know what I heard? Kevin, you know Ron, don't you? Yeah, I know Ron. He's been worshiping with us. You know what? Ron hangs out with a bunch of sinners. You go, yeah, I know he does. You know why he does? Because he's got the hope. I would love to know that, that all of us are actually going into all the world and presenting the gospel to everybody who needs it. So, last time through, Essential number four is the human race is completely lost and dead spiritually. So we're going to let it hang right there and invite you to be back with us for number five. There's hope in number five, but if you want to know what that hope is before you leave today, I can't wait to tell you. We'll tell you all about it. that hope. His name is Jesus. Father, we thank you for the day. We thank you for your love. We thank you for your son who is our hope. We thank you that he gave his life in our place and for our sin, doing for us what we could not do. God, I thank you that Jesus Christ bore our sin on the cross, that he was buried, and that he rose again victorious. And Father, I'm thankful that by faith alone, we can receive forgiveness. We can receive an inheritance. We can receive the promises and the beginnings of transformation that will come to a completion. But we don't want to let the cat out of the bag. We do want to thank you. Father, thank you for those that are here today. May we all learn how to see ourselves. May we all learn how you see others. And may we interact with them as you've called us to, as representatives of Jesus, our hope, as well as theirs. God, we thank you for just the opportunity to be family. And we look forward to what you're going to do in our life and through us this week as we watch for the opportunities you make available. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said.